Welcome to a special season of Napkin Scribbles, a podcast by Arthur and Professor Leonard Sweet. This season, Professor Sweet and Portland Seminary of George Fox University is proud to present Sex in the Sacred. Can faith be sexy? Join Professor Sweet as he scribbles out his formative thoughts on central orthodoxy. This season, the listener and the learner will get an intimate view on how an idea is conceived into a project and then midwifed into a book. We hope you enjoy this special season of Napkin Scribbles. Feature number three of a Jesus hot is to be in your skin, or what I'm calling an in your skin church or an in your skin disciple. Because let's face it, skin is sexy. Now there's different skin is sexy to different cultures. So there's a whole contextual element here. For some cultures, it's ankle skin. For some cultures like Myanmar, it's long neck skin. For some cultures like Iran, it's nose skin. For Kenya, it's shaved head skin and long earlobes. For Asian women, it's porcelain skin. For Indian women, it's henna skin. But whatever the context, to show some skin is to reveal that you are comfortable in your own skin, that you have some skin in the game, that the tissue of truth has blood beneath the skin, and that you are not so thin-skinned that you must hide behind the fabric and the coverings, but will risk everything to reveal the real thing even those warts and scars that make you unique, but vulnerable. Jesus showed the most skin at his baptism and crucifixion. God continues to show the most human skin in the sacramental skin of baptism and communion. Those traditions that keep the early church's ritual of foot washing know that seeing and that smelling and that feeling of dirty skin at foot washing, which itself is beautiful. The church conceived from the side of Christ came before everything else. Born at Pentecost, the church came before the New Testament. In fact, the first writings that circulated 20 years after Pentecost were, were sheets of papyrus or parchment folded together to form a group of leaves or pages that made up a codex. The pages of the New Testament are the true vestments or vestures, if you will, of the body of Christ, the sheet coverings of the skin of the body of Christ. No wonder the church is most sensuous, bells, smells, chants, in its sacramental adoration and adornments. But all veneration of the elements of bread, wine, and water must point us to the beauty of Christ, not to those elements themselves. And that beauty is uppermost. The world makes the words, I love you, a meaningless void of absence. But when I am says, I love you, they become a life-saving vortex of continuing presences and breathe easy places of composure. Your very presence, the nuggets of moments you give being all there to someone. And I mean all there, one word, all there. You're in a state of all thereness. Our bouquets of flowers, boxes of chocolate, communion wafers of sacramental life. 
Our skulls beneath the skin are so similar. Our skin that clothes our skulls is so different. Through the incarnation, Jesus is already in an intimate relationship with all flesh through our flesh. So the church's unease around all things carne or in the flesh or in your skin is paradoxically expressed in its hedging of the Sistine Chapel. Before any woman is allowed entrance, they're required to cover all skin with many vendors hawking on the requisite scarves, shawls, and coverings. Once inside, one is surprised by the presence of the five sibyls, female prognosticators that parallel the seven prophets. Both sibyls and prophets are looking to the future, but the viewer is ambushed by the fleshiness of the last judgment scene, said to be Michelangelo's greatest work. The whole wall is just a splash of naked people in vivid colors. The only ones not naked are the angels who are partially clothed. But the whole wall is one naked body after another. In other words, the Vatican requires visitors to cover up in order to see naked people. For the Apostle Paul, the body of Christ was most comfortable in its skin and most in its skin when all things were done decently and in order. Now, let's be clear here about the Greek words that Paul uses for the true composure of the body, decently and in order. Both these words are complex and full of nuance. What is usually rendered as decently and in order, I think, is better translated with decorum and a sense of proportion. Or best yet, are you ready? Gracefully and authentically. In other words, when you hear somebody talking about, we got to do this decently in order, retranslate it. Because what Paul really means is gracefully and authentically. So here's the skinny on Jesus. Jesus' followers have a style that is graceful and authentic. Catataxin. The Jesus style is progressive in appearance, but conservative at heart. So number one in your skin is graceful. Graceful means decorous, it means gracious, it means grace-filled at all times to all peoples. A finish of style is missing from the lives of so many people today. At best, Christians are like unsalted bread, grammatically correct, but lacking in flavor. At worst, we have a style as prickly as porcupines. Jesus tolerated no arch elitism or aristocratic dandyism from his disciples. He wanted gracefulness. Grace is not some celestial seasonings we sprinkle on life. Grace is what we're made of. Grace is what we're crammed with. Or as Brian Doyle puts it, maybe we're stuffed with the stuff. We're stuffed with the stuff. Of grace. That is why Martin Luther believed a Christian must and should be a cheerful person. Even though Luther found himself often plunged into pits of depression, in the teeth of death we live, is how he liked to put it, he would repeat over and over to himself the mantra, I was baptized, I was baptized, I am baptized. And the joy of God's grace would overwhelm his spirit. The worst thing you could say of a Christian, as Nietzsche knew, and used it to his advantage, was 
So where's the joy? Or as he looked at a picture of John Calvin and said, why don't God's people look more redeemed? Martin Luther got his doctorate in theology in 1512, at which point he took the doc doctoral vow of being a preacher. He took his preaching vow with lifelong seriousness. He would later renounce his monastic vow and his vows of celibacy and poverty, but he always cherished his preaching vow. In fact, the headwaters of Reformation amounted to a clash about preaching. We are accustomed to designate the trigger of the Reformation Tetzel's sale of papal indulgences in an effort to raise money for the Pope's building projects, including that Sistine Chapel that I talked about earlier. But what bothered Martin Luther the most was not the indulgences themselves, as offensive as he found them, but the fact that they were being preached to the people instead of the scriptures. Johann Tetzel's fame as a great preacher made his proclamations on behalf of indulgences all the more persuasive and powerful. And Luther was so incensed at the fact that the people were hearing fundraising sermons and not gospel sermons that he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg door. The Reformation began as a preaching protest. Tetzel died in Leipzig in 1519, a broken and bruised man. His reputation was ruined by the Protestants who hated him, his own Colleagues in the friary and in the Catholic Church turned on him and shunned him because the trouble he had caused the church and the order, as well as kind of starting this whole revolution called the Protestant Reformation. And the trauma of these double rejections by his own people and by the, the reformers and betrayals by his own people and by the reformers ruined his health. And when Luther heard about the pending death of his old adversary, Luther penned the broken man a beautiful pastoral letter. The letter is not extant, at least to my knowledge. Nobody has said they have a copy of it. But Luther comforted his old enemy by telling him, quote, not to be troubled for the matter. The Reformation did not begin on your account but the child has quite a different father. And we know that from somebody else quoting Luther's words to Tetzel. What grace, what graciousness, what gratuity. Gratuity is not a tip one gives for good service. Gratuity is the life of Jesus' style and service itself. So the Jesus style of grace and gratuity values diversity and harmonizes difference. Sameness is not saneness or stylishness. For Jesus, who chose an apostolic team noteworthy for its oppositional style, diversity is divine, healthy and healing. If, hear me, if there is oneness in Christ. So the diversity does not exist for itself, but it exists for the unity of oneness in Christ. To be of one accord is an accordion-like complexity of the differing keys, buttons, and bellows. They require both hands, all deployed simultaneously in the unfolding of one song. But it's the one song that all those diverse fingerings bring forth. This organizational style, if you will, of bringing together opposites and forcing them to sit down together to breathe the same air, Participate in the same mission is a gratuitous form of play and humor. 
When opposites are in play and not in combat, the dance of concatenation, not the bout of conflict, but the dance of concatenation, the grace of harmonious difference, not the choose your own way, choose your own key diversity, but the grace of harmonious difference. They draw everyone together into a chorus of, of joy. The second part of this, decently and in order, which we're translating as graciously and authentic, is in your skin is authentic. Authentic means true to the original while fitting to a time and place that's different from the original. Let me put it another way. Every circumstance has a stance. And our stance makes all the difference in difficult circumstances. Paul preached to the Jews differently than he preached to the Gentiles, but he never preached a different gospel. He always started from scripture when he was speaking to Jews. He always started from culture when he was speaking to Gentiles, but he always ended with Jesus. Style is not an identity. Our identity is in Jesus. It is in Christ. But style sends a signal of our identity and where our identity is found. When you make a fashion statement, you also make a faith statement. The signal of style is inevitably political. And I'm going to say something here that's going to appear really crazy to some who are listening to this because we've just gone through an election. But if Christianity has a politics, it is a politics of, hear me, style. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Greek word for to conduct yourself is the word we get politics from. To conduct yourself is itself a political statement. The answer to identity politics is an aesthetic composure of the three sacred transcendentals of being. And this is the highest achievement of theology for 15, the first 1,500 years when, you know, how do you know it's Jesus? And Aquinas is the one, Don Scotus made a big contribution, but Aquinas is the one that really formulated this. You look for signs of beauty, goodness, and truth. Beauty, goodness, and truth. And the when you find those three, you have all together the fourth transcendental, which is love. So the aesthetics here, the sacred transcendentals of being, create a sacred aesthetics, a style, a LBGT style, lifestyle, where L is love, B is beauty, G is goodness, and T is truth. You put BGT together, beauty, goodness, and truth. And... You can express all three in one word, and that one word is love. So for Christianity, politics is a style, but it's a style of love based on beauty, goodness, and truth all together. Jesus wanted his newly formed team to wear the right apparel before they represented him in the world. Stay in Jerusalem, he commanded them. Until, hear it, clothed with power from on high. Disciples need the right clothes. Or as my colleague Lori Wagner puts it, fitness for mission requires being outfitted for the task. The Jesus life demands mission digs. 
the vesture of vision, the raiment of righteousness, the toga of truth, the garment of light. Without missional garb, we are unsuited for witness and work in the world. The Holy Spirit is the one who tailor makes this clothing to match our character, our context, our circumstance. In Genesis, the first, first humans aim to clothe themselves in synthetics, but God stages an intervention and reclothes us in authentics. Not synthetics, but authentics. The kind of relational deposits that God designed humans to be. In the words of Paul, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Jesus is our ultimate covering. The apostles didn't wait for God to clothe them in Jesus' pants and Jesus' shoes for mission in the world. And so they went off ahead and didn't stay in Jerusalem, but cast lots and chose the 13th disciple, and you know the rest of the story. But what they didn't do, we should. The master tailor will outfit us in an authentic style that not only covers our exterior, but stitches together our insides as well, even knitting and latticing the hidden recesses of our hearts, clothed in light, colored with the glow and glamour of the gospel, armored by the protective plating of the spirit. We are now suited for the task we are about to undertake. Clothed in the spirit, we are now decked out as authentic disciples of the way, uniformed to wear our hearts on our sleeves for a broken, and the civilizing world. So we are in our skin, a skin that at the same time is clothed with the beauty of Jesus. Thank you for joining us on this special season of Napkin Scribbles. To join the conversation, make sure you look us up on Facebook and Twitter at Napkin Scribbles. This week's Napkin Scribble is brought to you by Portland Seminary of George Fox University. For more information, join them on the web at portlandseminary.org. For Arthur and Professor Leonard Sweet, happy scratching and scribbling.